You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome all to this episode of Core Curriculum. I'm going to be your host this episode. My name is David Grubbs. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. And with me on this episode is a gentleman who outranks me, Nathan Gilmore, uh, professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you, sir? I am doing well. Uh, unlike probably both of your colleges, we uh, just wrapped up the second week of classes uh, because our schedule has finals before Thanksgiving. Dude. <laughs> wow. So, and joining us is someone who outranks both of us. Uh, <laughs> yes, the illustrious Christina Bieber Lake. Uh, and I don't actually have your full title written down, ma'am. No, titles aren't that important. I am <laughs> professor of English. Uh, if you want to go by, I'm the Clyde S. Kelby professor, professor of English at Wheaton College. In uh, Wheaton, Illinois. Well, that is a pretty that is a, a pretty rad guy for a chair to be named after. So. <laughs> Very much so. Excellent. Well, in this conversation today, we are, as I said, venturing into books fourteen and fifteen of the Iliad. Uh, things have been going not so well for the Greeks. Uh, the they've been pushed back to the ships. And uh, there's uh, the, the the Trojans have the advantage of, of a nice fortified city that they can hunker down in and wait people out for a decade. Uh, <laughs> the Greeks just have some kind of a makeshift wall moat thing, and if you get past that, it's just boats in the sea. So um, they are in a bad way. And... Uh, now uh, the, the book begins with Nestor and uh, Agamemnon not looking their best. They've definitely had better moments. Um, what do we think of these, these leaders in this, um, I don't know, it's not Valley of the Shadow of Death, maybe it's more Beach of the Shadow of Death. The Beach Party of the Shadow of Death, I like that. <laughs> this is Agamemnon being Agamemnon. I mean, uh, as we discussed with books 12 and 13, I mean, when he is on his game, I mean, he is as deadly a fighter as any of them. But we've seen this a few times already in the poem. I mean, he is subject to just wild swings of character, I would call it. I mean, he is courageous one moment, and he is ordering everyone to retreat the next. Uh, Odysseus, who is a much more stable character, has to rebuke him. Uh, to keep him from, you know, basically calling the whole war off and jumping in the ships. Uh, we have another, uh, and again, you know, I, I realize I'm getting the direction of influence wrong here, uh, but Paradise Lost style council that the kings have to have to kind of get Agamemnon under reign. Uh, Christina, <laughs> what else is there to say about Agamemnon here? Because I, I don't like him very much. No, and Odysseus is so much more forceful. It's striking in this section how he's... He's just, you know, if we do this now, these 10 years are going to be a waste. What are you doing? Get back in the game. And then, of course, the involvement of the gods. I don't know about you, but it seemed more intense in these sections than in previous sections, which tells you that the leadership is kind of falling apart. With the, Am I making that up? I mean, you know, it just yeah. like there's just more involvement from the gods than in the previous sections. I mean... Poseidon is literally suiting up on yes, the, on the is, K inside this time. Exactly. He is dressed as a man down in there in the ranks and fighting. Yeah. I mean, we've seen that before earlier in the books, but as Poseidon is uh, very eager to remind uh, both Iris and <laughs> uh, the reader 
uh, he's he's Zeus's brothers. He's one of the big three, and here mm -hmm. we have one of the big three on the field. Mm-hmm. What do you think of uh, Odysseus? I, I, you, you talked about him him being uh, strong in the way that he speaks, but uh, at this point. It's almost like I could almost see him slapping Agamemnon. Snap out of it! <laughs> yes. You know Agamemnon's. You know, game over, man. And and Odysseus is just shaking him. It's so mm -hmm. funny. I mean, it's in my translation. It says, "And now I utterly scorn your judgment. The things you have said. You who, even as war and battle is joined, urge us to drag our well-benched ships to the sea." so that the Trojans have yet more reason to boast, victorious as they already are. You know, it's like, how could you do this? Your judgment has just gone out the window. Yeah. Especially especially coming after the previous book. This is, you know, mm -hmm. like Nathan said, this is wild mood swings. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's not just mood. I mean, you know, this is a different character in book 14 than we saw in 12 and 13, right? I mean, you know, that that version of Agamemnon, uh, first of all, I mean, Hector had to flee from him. That's not nothing. Uh, you know, the, again, I mean, you know, the, the whiplash that Agamemnon gives you at different parts of this book, I mean, uh, I, the more I read this, the more I think that he's several characters and then just a different version shows up every book. Yeah. It's interesting. Was it in the last section that he finally admitted he screwed up with the Achilles thing? Um, or was that earlier? I, I'm just trying to remember. You know, where he's just like, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Um, I think he has done that at this point. And I think he has sent messengers to Achilles, but to no avail yet. That was mm -hmm. in, bo that, in book nine, he sends the ambassadors. That's um, right. In book ten, we have the night raid, um, you know, where uh, Diomedes and uh, Odysseus get to be ninjas, and then in book eleven, um, Agamemnon gets his day in the sun. He's the butt kicker, mm -hmm. um, but but things have shifted for uh, uh, the 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 tide has turned for a couple of books, and uh, now the Achaeans are. They're basically getting in and uh, getting it in the neck, and they're backed mm -hmm. up against backed up against the the ocean. They're between the devil and the deep blue sea, and the devil's Hector. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I like that your expression, getting it in the neck, because we get a lot of descriptions of things and spears in the necks. Yeah. Throughout the Iliad. I was, uh, I love that you brought that up because uh, I was just reviewing material i teach the odyssey basically every semester and so i have to mm. kind of get my head back into the mix mm. and i like to bring archaeology into my class because then i show them pretty pictures and there's a tomb uh that was uh the dig was i want to say like four or five years ago um it was in pylos uh, what would have been pylos where nestor's supposedly from oh. um and a warrior was dug up from I think like the 13th century BC. So about the time that, you know, if there was a Trojan war, it's about then. Wow. So they, they found this warrior buried with armor and weapons and jewelry. And among the jewels, uh, among the, the valuables that were buried with him is this carved, I'm not really sure what the stone is, but it's, it's carved with this really finely detailed image of two warriors, one of whom is stabbing the other guy in the neck over mm. the top of his shield. Oh my goodness. He's grabbed the other the crest of the other guy's helmet, turned his head around 180 degrees, and then stabbed him in the, and stabbed mm -hmm. him in the, in, in the throat. Um, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, when <laughs> you think about it, it's an exposed area, right? So you, there's no armor, you can, you know because you have to be able to move your neck. And so it's it's not surprising that it ends up being described so much by Homer in this text that yeah. way. Yeah. Maybe maybe we should try to remember to link that when this 
uh, when this posts. Yeah, I'd like to see that. That sounds like a great... It sounds like it was well-preserved, too. Oh, incredibly well-preserved. Um, I'll, I'll send you a link. When you see mm-hmm. it, you're going to go, what? <laughs> Amazing. It could be an illustration of this. Yeah, um, wow. Well, more interesting things are happening uh, in the realm of the gods, though. Um, while men are dying, uh, Hera decides it's time to make her move. Before we get into sort of the details of Hera and her her tactical sexuality, um, <laughs> what do we think of this this amazing shift in uh, the juxtaposition of the scenes? You know, going from battle to boudoir. I thought it was extremely sudden and bizarre, and unmotivated right because so many of the books prior to this it's just back and forth lots of things people dying lots of randomness uh, you know no real motivation seems for a lot of the things except we've been doing this so we need to keep doing this and then poseidon is on the scene involving himself in the situation and then in my text, it says, Now Hera of the Golden Throne looked with her eyes upon him from Olympus, that is Poseidon, from the pinnacle where she stood, and immediately she recognized him, meaning, you know, she knows it's Poseidon, and he busied himself with the battle where men win glory, etc. And she rejoiced in her heart, and she looks towards Zeus, and hatred grew in her heart. Does it say why? No. You know, just all of a sudden she's like, Poseidon, that's really cool. I'm so glad you're doing this, you know, fighting for the Achaeans. And uh, I hate you, Zeus. And and there's nothing else. It's just a complete switch. What did you think about that? Well, I wonder if we're supposed to bring in every story we know about Zeus and how he treats Hera. <laughs> okay, okay. That, that, that's kind of what I assumed, that, that, you know, that's just kind of something that the, the Homer poet, I'll just call him Homer, can assume about his audience that they know full well why Hera hates Zeus. I mean, I think in this moment, it's the idea that, um, you know, Poseidon is actively uh, supporting and fighting in behalf of, you know, allegorically the army that is representing the, I guess, avenging marriage. And, you know, Zeus is holding them back in behalf of the adulterer. I mean, since she is marriage, allegorically. Right. So it's like, you're on my side. Now I'm going to get involved, you know. And this is showing me that I was correct in my hatred of Zeus for this reason, right? But yeah, yeah I think that's right. interesting. We're supposed to bring in all that knowledge and reading it. There's no doubt. It's just so stunning how it's just like, here we go, you know? <laughs> well, the, the inaction of Zeus in, at, where is he right now, sitting on top of Ida? Um, yes. Zeus's weird passivity is intentional, um, sort of hold, withholding his hand. We all know that because Zeus has kept telling us that Troy is destined to fall, the, the Achaeans are destined to win. Right. But he is withholding victory from them for this, for this period of time as a, as a result of the the request of of Thetis. um so so the 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 passivity of Zeus is really an intentional um withholding of his power from doing the thing that he knows he's going to do in the same way that Achilles is down there in his tent withholding himself hmm. um and for Hera Zeus's reasons are insuffi- as insufficient as Achilles' reasons, and she's you know she's backing the Achaeans, and Zeus's inactivity is mi- is 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 one of the things that's making them lose. Um, and but Poseidon is Poseidon's in the game, but Zeus won't Zeus won't go. Um, in fact, all he seems to do is whenever whenever a god is interfering on the side of the Greeks. He tries to pull them out of the game. Yes. So I mean, I guess she, I guess she's the dis, she's the distraction. At this point. Mm-hmm. 
and he, and he has gotten involved on the side of the Trojans, right? Because he did rescue yes. Hector from the onrushing Agamemnon. So, I mean, it, it's not as if he's completely inactive. I mean, she has watched him interfere. It's just that he keeps interfering, uh, you know, in behalf of the rage of Achilles instead of interfering in behalf of destiny. Mm-hmm. Right. But it, it seems to be deliberately just to extend the conflict. And every time I return to this book, that's what strikes me. And in fact, I, you know, I, as you know, I haven't heard any of the other sections or what people said about book 13. But as I was just reviewing it for, before the reading for today, um, when Poseidon gets in secret in the likeness of a man, this is what the text said. So the two gods, this is around line 355, so the two gods stretch the rope of violent strife and of war that levels all alike back and forth across both sides you know is to just keep them in conflict and yeah. you know I, when I was on this podcast earlier dealing with the first couple of books I just kept wondering you know what is the point of this really I mean it, is this a critique of war the fact that, that men get in these wars and don't really know why they're doing it anymore it just becomes this honor thing uh, the shame of withdrawing, you know, the whole motivation behind the conflict. So that every time the gods come in and they're just kind of stirring the pot and they're on a side, not really for victory, but kind of to keep stirring, it just seems to reinforce the meaninglessness of the conflict. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it reminds me, because it's so much more explicit in... Virgil, when Virgil comes back to these ideas and he tries to sort of do his own Rome-centric remix, uh, you've got that, uh, oh, what is it, book seven, around in there, seven, where Aeneas is in Italy, everything looks like it's going to be cool, but then Juno from, from heaven says... Um, I don't have the power to change destiny, but by gum, I can delay it for another yes. five books. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. That, yes. And, you know, so there's Virgil making text, what I think is subtext here. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you do see at least the Aeneid as a deliberate critique of this kind of war. Oh, yes. Okay. Where where Rome's Rome's destiny is is the absolute you know unchangeable eventuality and the war in between then is this it's just a delay and it's deplorable as it stretches on because mm-hmm. because it's not really going to change anything anything yeah yeah but i do think that is implicit in the iliad i think that's that's rightly said and it's interesting. I, I'm going to make a, a case for a certain flavor of heroism that arises in that kind of context, though, because there is something admirable because a lot of these characters, either directly or indirectly, make known that they know their destiny is set, and yet they keep taking up their weapons and fighting. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I, the, the more of these episodes I record, the more I realize uh, just how much of that old pagan is left in me. Uh, but I, I find something <laughs> compelling about that. Mm-hmm. Well, you're probably getting a little bit of that from Beowulf, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Friedrich Nietzsche and all these <laughs> books that I teach. <laughs> this is why they were having a woman on this particular one. It's like An- another bombastic pagan. <laughs> drawn to that kind of, um, you know, honor-based fighting, you know, heroic ideal we're just more like look at all these dead bodies it took me a long time to gestate that human being and you offed him in you know five minutes right oh yeah uh, there but this this we talked a little bit about this when the, those of us who did the first two books the honor based culture you know where the, the opposite of is the shame right so shame motivates shame and fear motivates an honor-based culture like, I don't want to be seen as the weak link, the one who's not the courageous fighter, the one who's afraid of, so I'm going to go out there and fight. Um, 
even if the cause seems pointless. Yeah, that hyper macho mm-hmm. tenor of that of those early bits. Um, well, and it's and it's really woven throughout. But but now the camera swings up, and now it the it go the the focus goes soft, and uh, Hira just starts lying to everybody. Mm-hmm. What do we think of her of her tactics here? Well, I thought it would be really interesting to read um, a, a common section across our translations because I, I love just looking closely at the text and I just thought that would be cool. So maybe we could pick an early scene in that. Would that be all right with you guys? Yeah. Um, um, where should I, where I was, start? I was thinking, well, when she first comes in and uh, and is getting all dressed... Mm-hmm. That would be interesting. And yeah. What you know, right? Just from the very beginning of her introduction, there. That's so, about line one fifty-five. A little bit before that. So off she went to her room somewhere, something like that. The chamber her loving son Hephaestus built her. Yes, the the paragraph, whatever, right above that one. Mine starts now. Hero of the Golden Throne. Um, uh, right. Yes. And she gets introduced. Yeah, I just would be interested to, to hear your translations, and if you guys could mention what translation you're using. Sure. Uh, what What have you got, Nathan? I've got Robert Fagels. Uh-huh. So I'll, I'll just read the first uh, couple poetic sentences here. Now, Hera poised on her golden throne looked down, stationed high at her post aloft Olympus Peak. At once she saw the sea lord blustering strong in the war where men win glory, her own brother and husband's brother too, and her heart raced with joy. Uh-huh. And I've got uh, Caroline Alexander, and now Hera of the Golden Throne looked with her eyes upon him from Olympus, from the pinnacle where she stood, and immediately she recognized him as he busied himself with the battle where men win glory. Her own brother and her husband's brother, and she rejoiced. Then she looked toward Zeus, sitting on the highest peak of Ida, of the many springs and hatred grew in her heart. The, I, I also have Fagels, but the one that I've been reading on the side is uh, a translation from, oh gosh, I think like the 30s or something, by a guy named W.H.D. Uh, Rouse. Uh, it's the Signet Classics Iliad. Hmm. Um, and it's written in very tight prose, reads almost like a novel. But Queen Hera stood on the peak of Olympus, watching. She knew him at once, her own brother and her husband's. Glad she was to see him so busy in the battle. She saw Zeus also, seated on Ida among the mountain brooks, and a, and a hated sight, she thought him. Mm-hmm. But that is definitely more loose with the with the syntax, definitely. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. it's not... It's, not, it's you know, sometimes uh, dropping an epithet or, or mm-hmm. re-rendering it. Um, you know, he, he'll call Poseidon um, Lord Lord Ocean Shaker Sea Green Hair. Uh-huh, interesting. <laughs> uh, th- uh, so, it, it, it's it's kind of a fun translation. Yeah, um, I would enjoy reading that, I think. It's very readable. It sounds easy to follow. Uh, very. It's, uh, it's one I've taught before to uh, dual-credit high schoolers. Mm, yeah, good idea. Well, so going back to your original question, you know, what do we make of this whole scene? I think that's what you were asking. Um, it's it's just quite, there's a lot of description of what she's putting on, how she's cleaning her body, putting on the, the oil, the sweet smells, braiding her hair, etc. went on for a lot longer than I was expecting. And so it's interesting to note what change that is from really the... F- previous three books of of this poem mm-hmm. um but then just you know why this much detail why spending this much time talking about her guile her is the this translation calls it calculated guile uh, you know so i just wondered what you guys thought of that it reminded me of 
an earlier book. I'm trying to remember which one it was. Um, it might have been it might have been book nine. It might have been book eleven. But there's a uh, another scene in which uh, I believe it's Agamemnon arms, and it has this description of him putting on his armor and his helmet, and he's wearing mm. uh, I think like a lion skin or something. Um, and then uh, a, a couple of books uh, uh, in about four books in book fourteen. Uh, we have that lavish description of the new armor that uh, Hephaestus forges for Achilles. And so uh, you have the scene in which Achilles arms himself for battle. Um, with this book sitting about equidistant between those two moments, uh, I, I, I kind of read this as a, uh, a kind of armament scene. Okay. Uh, She's she's girding herself in her own, um, with her own weapons in her yes. own panoply. Yeah, the power that's available to women is what she puts on in terms of her armor. The only power available to women in this culture is that sexual armament. And uh, and the other thing that occurred to me when I was reading it is just not only here but in the Odyssey, as you no doubt know, so much description about corporeal things, food, home, mm -hmm. uh, you know, clothing, appearances, smells, etc., that really reinforce the fact that these are gods, but barely, right? right. They're not, <laughs> you know, they're immortal, but that's really yeah. the only difference. Um, and and that always strikes me. Their transcendence, their transcendence seems to consist only of being invisible and able to fly. <laughs> yes. Well, and they don't die when you stab and they don't them. Die. Yeah. Th there's that too. Mortality, right? <laughs> well, uh, she snookers Aphrodite. Um, Aphrodite has some ch uh, charmed belt or something like a like a girdle of of love or I'm not not entirely girdle uh, of love. Called it a. <laughs> A breastband, Fagels calls it. Um, I think the other one that I was reading called it a belt. This says belt fitted with a hundred tassels. Is that the one you're talking about? No, I'm talking about the one that uh, the one that she uh, she connives out of Aphrodite. Aphrodite. Okay, let me yeah. see if I can find that. Yeah, in the Fagels, I mean, the what Aphrodite says to Hera is, "Here now, take this band, put it between your breasts, ravishing open work." And the world lies in its weaving. Yeah. Huh. So, yeah. So Aphrodite apparently even even Aphrodite cheats. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then she gets the assistance of Sleep. Yes. Um, uh, who has apparently gotten in trouble putting Zeus putting Zeus under before, but. He gets bribed <laughs> with one of the graces. Um, yeah, you know, let's go back to that Aphrodite thing, because in my translation, this is what it says. It has a curious design, and on it was lovemaking, and desire was on it, and on it was the language of love and its persuasion, which steals the sharp wits of even thinking men. So it's a kind of a it's not just an appearance thing right it's got the language of persuasive love on it hmm. and it's got this design it's a, it it's a seductive design if you will but it's language and i think that's really yeah. interesting given that this is you know in the words of a poem and about the power of poetry at some level that this even thinking hmm. men can, are persuaded by this seductive speech, seductive language, language of desire, language of love. I'm immediately thinking of things like the Phaedrus, yes, or uh, uh, I guess uh, the Symposium. Thing. Precisely. Yeah. Well, rhetoric, right? That's the ancient study, right? The, one of the most important studies that you do in classics, right? The study of rhetoric. Very, very cool. Wade with your speech. 
take away the wits even in th- of thinking men, you know. And now it, it it doesn't hurt that it's also between her breasts, but I'm just <laughs> pointing out that it is language-based. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, and and even the, the that location has a kind of symbolic um, right the heart. Yeah, because uh, oh gosh, I haven't seen it noticed it as much in here, but um, in the Odyssey. Um, words always seem to be coming from the breast. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Wing, winged words coming from the breast. Um, yes, so, well, in Old English, too, the heart locker, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that breast coffin? Is that, is that the Old English for that? Yeah, so there's this, yeah. that's where the core is. And um, yeah, persuas- the persuasiveness comes from there, too. And so that's why she's able to seduce him. And it's kind of funny how easily he falls. It's like, Oh wow! You know, even though they're married, right? <laughs> <laughs> Zeus is like, "All right, well, I mean, let's I... go right now. Let me just, you know, set this all up, right?" Well, I mean, I I, I don't think we should slide past, you know, uh, precisely how, how Zeus thinks he's sweet talking her. I mean, yeah, I yes. I have sire for you like I've never had for any of my adulterous affairs. Yeah, and then list them, right? Right. Yeah. I... <laughs> I was in the margin. Not a great idea to recount these others, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I have been waiting to get to this point, like this whole conversation. This yes, is, <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> it's hilarious. The, uh, you know, it just seems like such a terrible move. It's horrible. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter because she's in charge, right? So you can almost yeah. hear her laughing. Well, and I mean, to, to return to what Christina mentioned earlier, I mean, at this point, Zeus has lost his reason, right? I mean, I I have to think, you know, uh, that Zeus, you know, not being a god who necessarily always, sometimes, yes, but doesn't always uh, use his divine power to, you know, seduce women. I mean, sometimes he does use words. I mean, in those in those scenarios, I mean, he uses rhetoric, right? But here, he really has lost his mind, and he is saying things that are just by definition not seductive things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me mention I, every other adulterous affair I've had when I'm trying to seduce you. You're right. That's exactly that's exactly. Yeah. Well, it's 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 again if if we have this. Uh, inversion almost a parody of the arming of the warrior as she dresses herself now we have almost a parody of the app of the epic catalog yes precisely well, that's good, good. yeah like, the, like, remember earlier we yeah. had those all the warriors were named now we've got all the adulterous affairs uh, the 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 only other the the closest other thing that i can think of is uh what is it uh, is it Don Giovanni that has an aria in which uh, a manservant is listing off all of his master's conquests? If it doesn't, it should. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, th- I think it, I think it's that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it's this it's it's an epic catalog of Zeus's lovers, and the, and this is the closest that I think Homer gets to becoming Ovid. <laughs> <laughs> nice but uh, also f- super fun side note I love all of the bits of the of Homer Iliad and Odyssey that nod their head towards these other entire sequences of stories in Greek mythology that we only know more fully from later sources mm. but which right. this earliest poem that we've got you know you know, outside of uh, Hesiod, um, this earliest poem that we've got still presumes that you know all of these other story cycles. Yes, yes. It's it's as if this whole full thing is out there. Um, maybe not exactly in the versions we get later, but something as full as that mm-hmm. uh, is is lurking in the background. And don't you wish you knew? Oh, yeah, and bearing in mind how many things were destroyed, lost, right? The intertextuality yeah. that has just been lost. Um, yeah. Right, it's fun to speculate whether those later sources 
were working from that shared oral tradition that I assume was there and maybe even a written tradition or whether they were just picking up fragments that Homer alludes to and saying, oh yeah, this is the story he meant and then inventing them from whole cloth. <laughs> well, isn't it interesting how there's a parallel to between that and the whole Marvel universe and the way those stories get told and you know retold and reintegrated? The mythology is the proper word for that, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's the same kind of thing, and and it's it, and you can see why people do it, right? It's productive, and people want the stories, and they they have satisfaction from the recognition of the characters. So we, we achieve a kind of a dopamine hit, if you will. Oh yeah. Hera and Zeus, we know about them. So we're not surprised that, you know, she's going to go in and, and try to seduce him here. Right. So we have to have that background knowledge, but there's satisfaction in drawing on it. Right. Right. And I think that's but, really interesting. Yeah. I mean, another, Another point, I found this incredibly interesting. When he first sees her, and this is the way Fagel's renders it, he spotted her now, Zeus who gathers the breasting clouds, and at one glance the lust came swirling over him, mm. making his heart race fast as the first time, all unknown to their parents, they rolled in bed, locked and surged in love. Mm-hmm. It that That point that you were making earlier... Uh, about the the irrationality, the mat, the love madness of Zeus. It seems as if that is the only sexuality of which he is capable. Mm. He is he only pursues when it is risky, dangerous, border crossing, and irrational. Like this, this, this first occasion with with Hera, all unknown to their parents. There's that 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 hint of 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 forbiddenness mm-hmm. that pushes him to do the dangerous and the irrational, and all of these other thing, all of these other, you know, uh, couplings that he describes, are are similarly that. And now. She, she, her response is, "Oh, Zeus, out in public, the other gods will see." And he <laughs> says, "Don't worry about that. I got my gold cloud." <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. It's it seems as if he's only capable of that kind of thing. It's it's um, you 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 keep bringing up Paradise Lost, uh, Nathan, and and this makes me think of of Zeus in sharp contrast to that very rational and ordered um rightly passionate affection that adam and eve have before before the fall and then Uh, what happens in book nine as a sharp contrast right right zeus has meatloaf record (laughs) (laughs) i can't believe you said that that's so funny (laughs) oh lolsey I, I do want to pause, though, and just note that, you know, because Homer is a poet who respects words as much as he respects swords, uh, you really have to hand it to Hera here in Book 14. I mean, Odysseus has nothing on her. I mean, she negotiates, she deceives, uh, she sees weakness, and she exploits it. I mean, you know, I, I've got, once again, I've, I sound like a terrible person praising this, but it's really kind of compelling. No, it's just like praising Satan's speech in Paradise Lost. It's the same idea, right? It's a lot more interesting to be guiling and beguiling, right? Um, it's yeah. more fun. It's more playful and uh, more creative at some level than the speech of God, which is always honest, right, and straightforward. So, yeah. and, and you know, that's why he's reveling so much in this whole scene. And I do think it's really funny how Sleep at first responds and says, um, remember the last time that you told me to do this? It really, <laughs> just, didn't really work out well. <laughs> and yet he still does it. Yep. Right? <laughs> That's pretty funny. Well, and I guess the other thing is this, and beguiling. Even sleep is irrational when you when you dangle an attractive female in front and of you. There you go. With a with a rich linguistic, you know, repertoire. <laughs> 
I also want to note that, I mean, Hera is another species of this sort of pagan courage, right? Because, I mean, every divine being in this poem is terrified of Zeus, and yet she runs this hustle without looking back. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and again, it's that power thing. It's like, and she is going to be in control, and that's the issue here. You know, Zeus the Raper is not going to be, you know, invited here. This is the the woman, the goddess being in control. Yeah. From beginning to end. Almost like watching uh, one of those Oceans movies. Danny Ocean putting one over the much, much stronger uh, casino magnate. I don't watch those movies, sorry. Oh, okay. I, I love a good house. I, I love a good heist movie with a. Uh, so uh, are, are you thinking uh, Rat Pack or are you thinking George Clooney? Uh, the one that I always think of is George Clooney. The Rat Pack okay, one is just enough, the enough. Rat Pack one's just depressing. <laughs> well, meanwhile, Zeus is uh, Zeus is distracted, which means things can now turn in the direction of the Greeks, um, which it does when Ajax throws a big rock at him at Hector. Mm-hmm. Anything that we want to say about this 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 sudden shift back um, in uh, back to the battle? Yeah, the, the 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 new change in the balance. It, I, I guess what this invokes for me, and I know that these movies are using Homer's trope here, uh, but this is every boxing movie where the invincible giant gets a cut above the eye. And all of a sudden you hear the announcer just shrieking, Hector's hurt! Hector's hurt! Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. well, I love... Uh, is, it, is it later in this chapter or is it the next? Uh, when, oh, it's, it's the next chapter. Uh, maybe we should come back to it. But I love the follow-up on the scene. Like Hector's just on the sideline, his chest caved in. You know, spitting up blood, and Apollo wanders up in the book fifteen. Hey, man, you okay? Hector's <laughs> <laughs> well, like, Hector's really. like, you big dummy! I took a rock to the chest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just funny. So, so he he's out. He's out for the time being, and it seems like uh, now it's. It's Ajax's turn, and now we've got another one of those elaborate battle scenes in which people take turns killing people with flashes of backstory and trying to take their armor and then getting stabbed by someone else. And you just get lost in the names. Um, I'm, I'm impressed by the ways that uh, Homer creates the fog of war by just continually throwing more and more names out to where you eventually you, you forget whose side who is on wait who just got stabbed um the fog of war you know what that reminds me of is in blood meridian there's a scene where cormac mccarthy does that to renders the fog of war where you just it everybody just sort of gets lost in this uh, ongoing death you know just slaughter right and yeah. I always, I always put up uh, Picasso's Guernica, and and have the students look at that painting while we're talking about that scene in Blood Meridian, because it's the same kind of uh, flattening, you know, where you lose, you lose, uh, you know, what's more important? It's just all horror. Yeah. And I, I like that fog of war. So, and you can do that on the screen too. You, I don't know if there's certain movies that have, that that have done that where. You lose the heroes, and it just becomes. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but you know what I'm talking—the fog of war. And and yeah. and you're right, Homer. The Homer poet does this through uh, the names. Just the you, you can't possibly keep track of them. Yeah, uh, I I rewatched it recently just to remind myself of how it began. Uh, we watched uh, Katie and I watched the first Iron Man movie again mm -hmm. and that scene right at the very beginning when the mind goes off and tony stark is deaf and so they have that muted sound 
everything is playing out silently and it's just frenetic shaky mm. hand cam bodies moving chaos explosions and just the the stark fear of of stark fear haha <laughs> of uh-huh. <laughs> of being unable to parse the complexity that you're thrust in the middle of of knowing you're in deep danger but being unable to uh think your way through it quickly enough to 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 create any kind of safety or defense for yourself um I, i'm fascinated by the ways that homer approximates those kinds of scenes just by continuing to throw names and gore at you mm-hmm. um book 15 when zeus wakes up um yeah, he's not happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's needless to say. Yeah. And then we have this description of, well, you already said it, Nathan. You talked about the bravery of Hera. Um, how does Zeus's reaction at the beginning of 15 help us see just how brave she was in 14? Well, he recounts the earlier time when he brutalized her for doing just this. And once again, I mean, what impresses me about Hera is that the hustle never stops. I mean, she immediately redirects. She immediately switches the story up on him. I mean, she is the Toreador and he is the bull. I mean, she's not going to outmuscle Zeus, but Zeus isn't going to lay a glove on her. Yeah. It's pretty amazing because he's, you know, he's, uh, he talks about stringing her up midair with anvils hanging from her feet mm-hmm. uh, and then she immediately uh, the, the way Fagels renders it she shuddered before his thunder swearing a flight of winged oaths <laughs> I, I, like, I, I know exactly how those lines are delivered um, but yeah and then it, 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 the, the series she swears by earth by the vaulting sky and by the sticks she swears the greatest grimmest, grimmest oaths that bind the happy gods by your sacred head by the bed of our marriage mm. and we know she's lying through mm-hmm. her teeth this is amazing she's swearing and, the... and within 40 lines she's convinced Zeus to make her the chief messenger for his next move right Uh, she's so good and by that I mean good at it not like you know virtuous and well in the way that Odysseus is good right I mean she is not at a loss for words nope she should like him more (laughs) (laughs) yeah like like Athena has this thing for, for Odysseus but it seems like Hera should you know Odysseus should be her boy too. Maybe he sleeps around too much for that. That could be it. Maybe she's offended on behalf of her girl Penelope. Yeah, that's that's got to be it. Well, that's that's all that's all Odyssey stuff. We'll save that for another day. Um, what do? Oh man, the the description. Before he sit, he commissions Hera to go to the other gods, Zeus has this long description of what is to come. Uh, in Fagels, uh, I know it's going to be different in yours, Christina, but in Fagels, it's, it comes a little bit before line 70. Um, summon Eris uh, to come before my presence. Summon Apollo, Lord of the Bow. Uh, Eris will fly to Achaea's bronze-armed troops, direct the god who shakes the earth to stop, to quit the war, return to his own halls, let Apollo drive Prince Hector back to battle, breathe power back into his lungs, make him forget the pains, heal with the Achaeans into panic, back to their ships. Um, Then Achilles will launch his comrade uh, Patroclus into action, Hector will cut him down, and then once Patroclus is slaughtered, um, and among them, uh, uh, whole battalions of young men, and among them, my shining son, Sarpedon. Mm-hmm. Right? 
And then, enraged for Patroclus, brilliant Achilles will bring down Hector, and then I'll turn the tide of war, and Troy will fall. Mm-hmm. Zeus, Zeus has just told us, like blow by blow, what happens for the rest of the, of the, of, of the book, and what happens after the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are we? What are we supposed to? What are we supposed to do with that? <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> I mean, he's not just sort well, of you, you know, vaguely you know, saying. Well, you know, I'm going to go back to Milton, David. I mean, you know, this is, okay, this is yeah. the father in book three, right? He summarizes the rest of the poem, and then you know, the joy is in watching it unfold for the other nine books. If you're reading the twelve book edition, that's true. That's I mean, true. does he does he relay that at this moment to say, "I'm in charge here, and you know, I'm going to tell you exactly what's happening"? Is that part of the reason why Zeus does this right here? I think so. Yeah, except Zeus isn't entirely in charge. I mean, these these destinies are fixed points that not even he can... I mean, he sometimes laments that he can't change them. Because it's fate. Yeah, yeah precisely. Mm-hmm. Interesting. When he, he mentions this son Sarpedon um, in the next uh, in the next section which uh, maybe maybe it's the one after that trying to trying to remember i'm i'm on i think like this is the first of three in a row that that i'm on and i've recorded one of them and still have yet to record the other uh asynchrony asynchronous Mm -hmm. um in one of the in one of those other uh, episodes sarpedon dies and zeus actually has this moment where he wishes he could make it stop uh but then Uh, he's called on it. Uh, uh, that what think of the chaos that will ensue if you if you defy the destiny of even one man, even a man who is your son, whom you love, and so Sarpedon dies amid you know tears of blood falling from the sky, um, which I. I, I Again, you've got, you've always got your Paradise Lost references, Nathan. Um, I hadn't I hadn't really thought about reading this alongside of later on. Um, you know the the idea of the relationship of father and son in Paradise Lost, mm. where there is a son who is privy to this parallel speech. Um, oh, that's good. That's good. But who will also die. Um, as the father looks on um that's yeah really really interesting the 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 echoes of homer that you find in milton but hilton milton is probably uh probably feels like he's 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 hearing echoes of something even deeper behind homer oh to be sure to be sure what do we want to make of the actions of the lesser gods? It seems like they've all just decided to rush into the scrum at the end of 15. <laughs> this is where be- being an Americanist, a 20th and 21st century Americanist, does not help me. <laughs> you know, I'm like, what is this? <laughs> so... I'm going to do my usual thing and, and read it allegorically. I mean, you know, this is the moment in any struggle where, at this point, I mean, what the human beings are doing with their will and with their bodies is really at most secondary. I mean, there are forces beyond them that are just smashing into each other. And and I think the moment that brings that home to me is around line 350 in the Fagel's translation, uh, where uh, a fighter named Thoaz... Um, says this, uh, yeah, about line 346 or so in the Fagels. Um, now he, Hector, will make more slaughter, well I know. He'd never be at the front smashing our lines unless old Thunder Zeus had put him on his feet. So come, friends, do as I say, I'll take my lead. The rank and file go back, withdraw to the ships. But we who claim to be the army's finest champions stand our ground, face him first, try to beat him off. 
spears at the ready for all his fury trust me he'll quake before he penetrates our front so again i mean i I know i'm just hammering away at this this episode but i mean this is i know that the chief god that is terrifying to every character in this poem is coming at us in the person of hector so pick up your shields and let's fight him Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that makes sense so we, we are going to die. Let's die with our shields up. Yep. Come home carrying your shield or on it. Or on it, right. And again, I'm not saying this is good. Listeners, I want you to know I'm not actually an old pagan. When I step back from <laughs> him or when I step out of this poem, uh, I realize that a better way has come and his name is Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't go sticking spears in people's throats. It's too but late. The emails have already flooded in. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> but when I am reading this poem, I mean, it is compelling. I mean, there's a reason we're still reading it. You know, well, well, what are we up to now? About, you know, 2,800 years later? <laughs> yes, but, there's a certain appeal to it. The, hero, the heroic, right? The well, yeah. I, I, I admit to loving films like 300, even though I know there's all kinds of things wrong with the view of war and the Persians and the Greeks, you know, but I love those films. Yeah. Oh, and see, I, yeah, Xerxes yeah, you, never you dressed the like one, that. wrong one, Christina, because I have an everlasting grudge against 300 because it took Herodotus's version of Xerxes and made him boring. Yes. <laughs> that is just a literary <laughs> crime that I cannot forgive. I get it. I get it. That's hilarious. But I, I was more talking about just the scenes of, you know, this kind of conflict is glorified, you know. It, it And I hate myself for liking it, but I enjoy it. Yeah. You know. Oh, I know, I know. I'd want to say, though, that Homer, there's a glory to the battles that are in, that are in Homer, but he doesn't completely aestheticize them he doesn't completely render everything interesting and artistic no he doesn't and um, i think that's on no, purpose no. yeah yeah th- there's yeah th- this is rocky some, this is not a rocky sequel. honesty <laughs> yes Break, yes yes that's yeah, a, rocky, i think that's exactly sequel. right yes um you know he's homer's camera work is very very good but he also knows how to show you um, something something awful, like at the end of book fourteen, when a man cuts off um, a man takes a spear in the eye graphically, then has his head severed, and the head is waved around on the end of the spear like the head of a poppy, and and we know who he is and who his parents are, and why it's awful that he never will come home Mm. um like that that's amazingly uh, to me that that's that's very powerful stuff uh often i think gosh I, i i i feel like each generation feels like it discovered that war was awful yeah in the same way that each generation feels like it discovered sex yeah, or, that sounds about or, right. Or skepticism, or whatever. Um, but this is this is the oldest extended war poem we've got, so far as I know. Um, and it depicts and... war as pretty awful. Yeah, <laughs> pretty awful, and yet tantalizingly attractive. Mm-hmm. It's both of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the scene, the, the spear through the eye. There was one. In my translation that described it, you know, like just below your belt, belly button, above your genitals, it's like the spear goes right in there and then the guts come out. And that being a particularly horrible place to get stabbed. I don't know how yeah. we would know that, but yeah. it was really graphic. And um, yeah, I mean, that is not glorifying that. The number of people who get shot in the back, especially when Paris shoots people in the back. I always want to throw the book when I, whenever Paris shoots somebody in the back. That guy. Mm-hmm. He does not deserve to have any score up on the board. Yeah. So, all of this has attracted uh, 
the attention of, well, lots of different heroes, but among them is uh, Patroclus. We left him. Uh, he, he appeared uh, a couple of books ago and was helping out a friend uh, who had been wounded, and then uh, round about line 460 or so in Fagels. I'm not sure what it will be in yours, Christina. Um, <laughs> Patroclus is still with his friend, helping him out, and has suddenly seen that the Trojans have burst through and are in among the boats. And so he says, now it's time for me to go and see if I can persuade Achilles to fight. So we've got this brief little moment foreshadowing the next thing, the ne- uh, the what what's going to go down in the next book. Um, we we said uh, I think it was before we were recording. Um, uh, we we were talking about how the the chronological order of things gets scrambled in Homer, but nothing's really out of order it's that he's jumping back and forth from these different scenes and he'll come back to it and you know he's he's weaving he's mm. weaving these things together um like the backstory he, yeah it's the it's it's the it's the jump cut mm-hmm. <laughs> in in the movie with too many with with too many protagonists right you know meanwhile patroclus was still patching up this one guy um, it's very deft. Mm. What else, uh, as we wrap this up, uh, what else is worth, what else is worth paying attention to in the rest of 15 or maybe even earlier things that we glossed over? One thing that I'd like to, to dwell on for just a moment is, uh, Nestor's prayer towards the end of book 15, because it's a fascinating moment. And of course, you know, the, the masters of the ambiguous oracle are, are Sophocles and then, you know, Herodotus. Uh, but here we get, you know, Nestor saying this prayer and then there is a crack of thunder from Zeus. And Nestor takes this as a sign that Zeus is on his side, but then our narrative voice says, no, this is Zeus saying it's going to get worse. <laughs> and yeah. that just strikes me as, you know, a moment of reflection on you know the relationship of these kings to the gods i mean just a reminder that there are no guarantees with these deities Mm-hmm. well and once again part of this prayer this speech that he's giving is um you know be have shame is the way that the the, the translation i have is putting it um which again is that honor-based culture it's like remember your parents uh take a strong sand don't run away because otherwise, shame, you know, uh, that struck me as a part of his final thought there. Yeah. Be men, my friends. Discipline your hearts. Maintain your pride. Think of your mm-hmm. sons, your wives, your wealth, your parents. Um, which we've already seen the way this is... This is what is under direct threat for all the Trojans, hmm. right? Um, none of the Achaeans have a. None of their wives are here, right? <laughs> none of their um, minor or inf, you know child or infant sons or too elderly to fight fathers, you know none of their houses or estates or wealth other than the spoils of war are here. Um, it's That's interesting right. that Nestor Nestor isn't saying fight to defend them. He's saying you fight to stay alive so that you can go back to them. But the Trojans are literally fighting to keep from losing what they love, not just fighting to go back to to mm. it. Mm. Yeah. Well, did you have any last point that you wanted to bring up, Nathan? No, I, I think we've we've looked at some fascinating stuff tonight listeners it's tonight where we are yeah tonight well i think that is all we have time for um dear listener i hope you've been uh keeping up with us as we've been reading through the iliad 
if if you haven't gotten up to 14 and 15 yet um, by all means wade through and if you find some things in there that uh, we really should have touched on let us know um, we're 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 interested in not just uh, ending a conversation right now but maybe starting one that spills out over into your feedback if you want to give feedback, you can do it on our Facebook page or our blog, ChristianHumanist.org. You can also email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, this is a Core Curriculum, a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our editors are, at this moment, various. And in the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs, and bidding you farewell on behalf of Nathan Gilmore and Christina Bieber-Lake. Have grand weeks, y'all.